Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, we return to you today with part two of our conversation with lace maker and historian Elena Kanagi Liu. Elena joined us earlier this week to discuss the history of lace making and share a bit about how the making and wearing of handmade lace was a common quote-unquote thread that united the lives of women for centuries, and also how its construction and consumption spoke to broader issues of women's roles in society at the time. And, and Cass, I love this little passage that I'm about to read. This is from Iris Anthony's novel, The Ruins of Lace. She writes, and this is fiction, this is historic fiction, but but she encapsulates it so perfectly. She says, Lace is formed from the absence of substance. It is imagined in the spaces between threads. Lace is a thing like hope. It is lived, it survived, and was desired for what it was not. If faith, as the nun said, was the substance of things hoped for, then lace was the outline, the suggestion of things not seen. Oh, that's quite lovely. And mm-hmm. for actually anyone interested in historical fiction, Iris's book is about two French lace makers and is a little bit of a mystery novel as well. So check that out if you are so inclined. But listeners, not all handmade lace belongs to history. Instead, it belongs to not only today, but also tomorrow. And we are so pleased to welcome Elena back for part two to discuss her own work as well as the contemporary lace making scene. Elena, welcome back. Let's talk about you a little bit more. Your education and evolution as a maker has actually involved quite a bit of travel abroad. You went to FIT, where you majored in textile design. And then after that, you embarked on some European adventures. Where did you go and who were you working with, et cetera? So... I, after moving to New York and working in fashion for a few years, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I had previously studied fiber art as a fine art, but I wanted to get more technical training in textile. So I, of course, went to FIT, which is also your alma mater, to study textile design. And it was, this was in a period when I had taken one bobbin lace class in 2012. I flew all the way to Idria, Slovenia to take this class um, because it was the only school I could find online. But when I came back, I couldn't continue my studies. So at FIT, I sort of continually thought about, like, how can I really learn this technique um, more in depth? And I was very fortunate to be the recipient of an art historical grant, um, the George T. Dorsch Scholarship Award, which is given to one student a year for a specific research project, which funded four months of travels across 14 European countries where I studied lace making in seven different lace schools. And that just completely transformed my life. And I knew immediately that this was for me and I was never going to come, you know, do anything other than lace ever again. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the different, was it specifically bobbin lace that you were studying or were you studying various techniques or do you want to mention any of the schools in particular? Yeah, I did study a range of techniques 
primarily bobbin lace. I started in Croatia where I did not take a lace class, but my husband took a bobbin lace class. Croatia unusually has a number of different techniques. They make needle lace and bobbin lace, including they're most known for pog lace, which is a needle lace made out of aloe fiber. And I have not studied that yet, but I will someday. Also, I went back to Slovenia where I studied bobbin lace. Um, in Italy, I took my first needle lace class in Burano. I had been previously and seen the needle lace makers working in the lace museum in the, uh, this little island off of Venice. And so I was able to get in touch with this shop, Martina Vidal, where some lace makers still work and where they still sell some handmade lace and arrange a needle lace workshop, which was amazing. And then in France, I studied at two lace schools, um, one in Le Puy-en-Velay and one in Brieux, where they specialize in polychrome Le Puy lace and this particular type of um, lace using point d'esprit or these little spirit points. Mm -hmm. And that, and from there I went to Spain where I made blonde lace. And then the, I believe the last class I took was in Belgium where I did Bunch, which is quite advanced in bobbin lace. And, you know, by that point I had been immersed in it for months and I just was hooked. Yeah. Well, um, for any of our uninitiated within a lace terminology, would you explain uh, what polychrome lace is and then also what blonde lace is? Oh, absolutely. So polychrome just means any lace that's made in multiple different colors. There are numerous kinds. Lace is not, as it's often perceived, all wholly white technique. And in fact, the um, earliest laces in bobbin lace were often made in multicolored silk and gold thread because it was sort of related to passementry or the kind of braided trimmings you might see on military uniforms. So that's a polychrome. And then today there are regions that spe specialize in that. For example, in Brazil, they have a long bobbin lace tradition that has become treasured locally and is widely studied and practiced. And they are famous for making really colorful lace as well. And then what about blonde lace? So blonde lace just refers to silk lace, essentially, although specifically the type of technique that is called blonde is usually point ground laces, which are sort of the tool ground, the sort of frothy, lightweight silk laces made in undyed silk that develop in the 19th century. So the kind of thing that you're seeing these really beautiful sheer Victorian lace shawls made from. Mm -hmm. And and that also brings you to the question too, what are some of the other fibers that are most commonly used in making lace? Well, today, of course, people make lace from everything from human hair to spun garbage bags. Um, <laughs> shout out to Padina Bandar. But um, historically, as I mentioned, it was often made in gold wrapped threads, metal threads, colorful silks, and most traditionally in, in white linen. And this is because it develops off of linen as an edging. And so it's washable and practical more so than colorful silk and metal. So you brought all this knowledge back home with you when you came back to New York City and you founded the Brooklyn Lace Guild. What was the impetus behind founding the guild? And I'm hoping that you could speak to the scene for artisanal lace making in the U.S. at that time and then also fast forward to now. So as I mentioned briefly, you know, when I started out in looking for lace classes, the closest one I could find in commuting distance was in New Jersey, but it was still three hours on the train. There's also a great lace organization in Ithaca. And now I know of the American organization 
IOLI or the International Organization of Lace Inc., which has charter chapters all over the country. And there are lace classes um, at many of these, both in person and online. But at the time, not many lace organizations 10 years ago had websites. So really the Slovenian school was the first one that came up for me. And I'm so glad to see that that's changed. So when I embarked on this trip in 2015, my goals for the project were three-pronged. So one was to, of course, study lace making and learn how to make it myself. Two was to conduct interviews with lace makers across Europe, which we'll talk about more, I think, in a bit. And then three was to found a guild in New York City as there wasn't a lace guild at the time. There have historically been lace guilds in the past, but none of them had made it all the way to 2016 when Brooklyn Lace Guild was founded. So initially we were going to call it New York Lace Guild, but we in fact discovered that there was another guild that had previously been called that. So we decided since most of us lived in Brooklyn, we were going to be Brooklyn Lace Guild. And that was a successful start in 2016. What we didn't know was that another organization had been founded a hundred years before in 1916, the Needle and Bobbin Club, that was also connected to um, Met Museum staff. So that's a really cool coincidence too. Which you are as well. And we're going to touch on that here in a little bit further. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure digging into that lace making history, even within, within New York City, was supremely fascinating for you. And you have now also added, besides maker historian, to your CV. Could you tell us a little bit about your graduate studies and how studying history and fashion history has really informed your path as a maker and your practice? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, part of my project um, in traveling was to interview lace makers. I conducted 28 interviews with lace practitioners, but also with a few lace dealers and business owners who still work in handmade lace. And that became the basis of my master's thesis when I did my master's in costume studies at NYU. So just sort of exploring lace making today and laying out sort of how this technique survives in Europe. As far as how studying history has informed my path as a maker, everything that I do as a historian is grounded in my experience as a maker. And particularly in a field as complex as lace, I really believe that the only way to truly understand its history and to learn to identify different types of lace is through making lace. So Mm -hmm. everything that I do kind of brings these two things together. And I've always felt that it was odd that there was a divide between these two fields. So I've really actively tried to bridge that in my career. And I'm so glad to see more projects and more people doing the same all over the world. Well, I'm sure overlapping those two only enriches your work in both. Absolutely. So let's talk about your work in particular. Let's start perhaps with the Refashioning the Renaissance project. What was that? So the Refashioning the Renaissance project um, was started by Paula Hoti and Sophie Pittman through Aalto University in Finland. And the premise of the project is to study not the dress of the wealthy in the Renaissance, which we already know a lot about, but to explore dress of the working or artisanal classes and to see the sort of imitation textiles and fashion and techniques that they were 
able to create and wear for themselves. And of course, not many of these extant objects exist. So a lot of what the project entailed was reproduction. It was a practice research project. So Paula and Sophie approached me to teach a bobbin lace class for them um, early on in the project. And then later on, they proposed that I reconstruct a piece of bobbin lace representing something that a fashionable artisan might have owned between 1550 and 1650. They had the idea of a handkerchief made to half scale, so 20 by 20 centimeters, as opposed to what is more typically 40 by 40 centimeters. As handkerchiefs were not only a ubiquitous accessory, but also an excellent way to showcase four edgings, one on each side. So additionally, they wanted me to explore sumptuary legislation of the period to make lace edgings that both followed and broke the law for members of the artisan class. And already during this time period, there were major evolutions in the design, construction, and usage of lace, as well as regional variations between Italian states like Genoa, Milan, and Venice. And we determined that the four lace edging should represent the development of regional styles of techniques in bobbin lace. I won't go into too much detail about the final edgings as my findings will be published with the rest of the innovative research conducted by the refashioning team in both a book and a journal in 2023, which is very exciting. That's very exciting, yeah. But I will say that it further clarified for me the distinction between early production of bobbin lace and needle lace, as well as why there are so many fewer bobbin lace patterns than needle lace patterns, and some of the issues that arise with bobbin lace patterns from the Renaissance. Mm. And what was different and challenging for me about this project was that for the first time, the research and planning on the back end took far more time than the lace making itself. So every choice I made of tools, of threads, of stitches had to be backed up with historical research. And I even made my own bobbin pillow out of blue and white checked linen stuffed with straw as the earliest bobbin lace makers worked freehand without a pattern, instead following the checks or the stripes on their pillow fabric. Oh, that's really interesting. Huh. One of the things as you were speaking that I was thinking about was, you know, you did all this research, right? You're going to primary sources. What sort of primary sources were you looking at to kind of determine the types of edging that you were going to create? Great question. So I really tried to encompass a variety of different techniques in terms of where I got the pattern from, how I transferred the pattern to the pillow, the type of lace, et cetera. Um, through these four edgings, which each represented quarter centuries between 1550 and 1650. Um, So the earliest piece was actually a reproduction of an extant handkerchief edging in gold bobbin lace that's in the collection of the V&A. And that one, I was very lucky to start with a piece that's already been reproduced by an incredible um, lace maker and early lace historian, Jillian Dye. So I was able to start with something just to dip my toe in that has already been reproduced in order to understand it a little bit. And this was worked freehand, so on a checked base. But I also used not just reproducing extant pieces, but I also um, chose a lesser known bobbin lace pattern from one of the few female designers, Isabella Catanea Parasole, from her pattern book with another virtuous woman title um, from 1610. <laughs> so her she's very well known for her needle lace and embroidery patterns, but less for her bobbin lace. So I was curious to explore this. So I really tried to represent the gamut and I use different materials as well. So 
Um, two were in linen, one was in polychrome silk, and one was in gold thread. Yeah. Ah, so fascinating. And please do let us know when that article comes out. We'll uh, let our listeners know when it's out and they can get their hands on it. Some of our listeners might recall that your name came up on an episode that we did in the fall of 2020 called Not All Heroes Wear Capes, RBG's Supreme Court Style, because you are actually part of this particular fashion history. How so? So in 2018, Brooklyn Lace Guild was approached by Columbia Law School with a proposal to create a handmade lace collar to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the investiture of their alumna, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. And as I mentioned, formerly I was a fashion designer who mainly did custom work. And I had always told myself that I would never take on a lace commission because it's just too much work. But I couldn't pass up this really incredible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So of course I said yes. The project was conceived of by Columbia Law School's creative director, Kara Van Warden, who also created the logo for their 25th anniversary celebration. Um, which was a color design of repeating tiny 25 motifs in little spirals. And it wasn't possible to turn that specific design into lace. So I created several digital mock-ups and eventually we agreed on a pattern of torsion bobbin lace with two rows of repeating 25 and a little scalloped edge. The final collar after several samples was made in Egyptian cotton with Japanese silk gimp around the motifs. Gimp means an outline thread. And it took me 300 hours to finish, which included design and sampling. So really a lot of work. And this was some, the first time I had worked on something so labor intensive and sat for many long days in a row at my pillow. So the experience really made me feel so connected to the lace makers of history who would have spent years of their lives working at that pace. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's truly a privilege that I have the choice to make lace for the joy of it. So I hope that my work always celebrates and honors the lace makers who didn't have that choice. Yeah. And would you tell us a little bit about the piece itself that you made for Justice Ginsburg? What did it look like? It is in the style of collar that RBG was known for. It closes in the back. Um, I'm not sure, maybe you know better than I do, this sort of name of this particular style. It's kind of like a Bertha collar from the late 19th century style. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like a strip around the front um, and it's torsion is a particular type of bobbin lace that's made with a grid that's a 90 degree angle. So it's sort of the easiest to design into, which is why I chose it. But it has a really beautiful effect um, and it's very lightweight and sheer. So it, unfortunately, we don't have a picture of the late, ju- the late justice wearing the collar, but it really was an honor. And we did receive a note of gratitude that she would be wearing it in early 2019. Wow, that has to be supremely special as a maker. (laughs) Where does that uh, collar reside today, out of curiosity? It is now back in the care of Columbia Law School. Hmm, Interesting. Well, this is probably wetting people's appetite to see examples of your very exquisite work, which they can now up close and in person in the Threads of Power exhibition. You know, you mentioned earlier, you're like, oh, I don't ever want to do commissions. Well, (laughs) here we are again, Uh, because this piece was commissioned specifically for this exhibition. Uh, Tell us about it. Well, I guess it turns out I do enjoy making lace, (laughs) although I can only produce them at a rate of a about one per year. So, you know, um, there aren't very many of them that I've made in existence. But when Michelle and Emma approached me, they gave me 
a totally, you know, blank canvas, anything I wanted to make for the exhibition. And in retrospect, I'm really honored that they trusted me with such a major commission, especially because from the very beginning, they planned that this would open the show. And they didn't actually see the finished collar or the other pieces that go with it until a week before the exhibition opened. So they really put a lot of trust in me, which I'm very grateful for. I immediately knew that I wanted to take inspiration from an exquisite piece of Punto and Adia needle lace dating to about 1600, which depicts the story of Judith slaying Holofernes over multiple scenes. And the story I wanted to tell with my lace collar was about women rising up to fight oppression. So for those who are not familiar with the story, Judith, with the help of her maidservant Abra, seduces a tyrannical general, Holofernes, and decapitates him while he is passed out in order to liberate her people. And Incredibly, there's another piece of the same lace made from the same drawing in the Mets collection, although there are slight variations between the two. And in total, I've counted at least eight historical pieces of lace depicting Judith and Holofernes, including the one in the exhibition. And I couldn't help but wonder why were so many lace makers drawn to this story? You don't see it often in embroidery or other textiles of the same period. There's a lot of um, Old Testament stories, but not deuterocanonical or Judith story. I'm Sure, I mispronounced that, but it's fine. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> so I, I couldn't help but wonder if lacemakers found empowerment in depicting a woman slaying an oppressor as they spent long hours doing incredibly skilled back-breaking lab- labor for poverty wages to adorn the throats of kings. And then in June, while I was in the middle of working on my collar, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And in addition to marching and donating to abortion funds, I found real catharsis in channeling my rage into the injustice Mm -hmm. against people with uteruses in my lace. So what was new for me about this project and different from my earlier projects is that I didn't actually create a working diagram to follow. I simply drew out the design and figured it out as I went along, which was really challenging. And again, this was after 10 years of making lace to get to that level. And in total, the collar took me 200 hours to complete. So a hundred fewer than the previous color. Um, And 50 hours of that was finishing. So you can imagine when I turned back the first lobe of the collar after all of those hours, I wept with pride. And I also cried a few times in particularly challenging moments while making it. So now I can point at the finished piece and say, here's the arm that made me cry. And also throughout the process, I filmed with an overhead tripod and there's a six minute time-lapse video of the process on view in the gallery. So you can watch me make the whole thing start to finish. It's fascinating. I watched it like three times. (laughs) I even edited it to one minute that you can watch on my social media, which we'll talk about later. But um, it's, I wish it were that easy as, as the video makes it look. But additionally, Michelle and Emma, the curators of Threads of Power, suggested that they wanted a portrait of me wearing the collar to be displayed alongside it because historical lace makers were so rarely able to wear their own work. And I knew immediately that I wanted to work with my dear friend and photographer Rose Callahan and pay tribute to the late and great painter Artemisia Genaleschi, who famously triumphed over her assailant um, to become one of the finest court painters in Europe. If you're not familiar with that story, I, it's heartbreaking. Um, but I highly recommend you read about her life and look at some of her gorgeous paintings, which she depicted Judith and Holofernes over and over again in her lifetime. So in the final 
portrait, which we titled For Artemisia. I'm wearing the red lace collar and holding a dagger in front of one eye. And you can see that on view in the gallery. And again, I was so moved when I saw the photo in Rose's camera at the shoot by how perfectly she had captured what I had pictured in my mind. But again, I cried. Um, So lots of crying, perhaps, but lace really makes me emotional. Yeah, well, both tears of joy and tears of pain. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I am absolutely certain that you are not the first lace maker to cry into their work. Definitely not. (laughs) You mentioned just briefly just now that the piece is red. Why? Ah, well... There are a few reasons. You know, I wanted to use color. I knew that I wanted to use color because I wanted to show that lace is not always white, not historically or in contemporary lace. I knew I wanted to use silk because it's just so beautiful and glossy and incredible to touch and wear. Um, And I was uh, in part inspired by a needle lace artist, Penny Nichols, who made an incredible piece of Venetian Grow Point needle lace in red silk called Just Girly Things. That's two scorpions with ribbons on their tails fighting each other. It's amazing. Um, And it was just such a stunning effect to see this all red lace that that was partly my inspiration. And then later when I was talking to Michelle and Emma about it, Emma pointed out that a red lace collar around your neck almost has a visual depiction of, you know, a cut throat or decapitated head bleeding. And I immediately said, oh yeah, that's what I meant to do. That was perfect. (laughs) So really, I think it was somewhere deep down, I, I maybe realized that that's what I was trying to do, but it was Emma who actually pointed that out at first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, if anyone has never actually seen this process of the making, it's enthralling. And one of the things that I love so much about what you do is you have created quite a presence um, as an educator both in person and also online. Uh, Would you tell us about some of the outlets that you use to do so and the types of content that you create? Absolutely. You know, we hear many gripes about social media these days, but I will say that what I love about it as a platform is that it is such an accessible platform for educational purposes. And that's what I really love to do is share my passion and knowledge around lace because This field in particular is difficult to access because there's not many publications that are, you know, in print or widely available that talk about the history of lace. So I really wanted to put things online where people could learn about them. I've been on Instagram as an elder millennial for a decade at this point. um, So that, you know, naturally I progressed through my career from sharing my fashion designs to my paintings which I shouldn't say I'll never do anything but lace again, because I do love doing a variety of things as well. But now, of course, my primary focus on my account on Instagram is lace. And then in September of 2020, my dear friend Joshua McKinney, who's a doll artist, basically suggested, why not post one of your lace videos on TikTok? People love your lace videos. They love watching them. I bet it would be really popular there. So I thought, okay, he helped me edit and upload a video of me making lace to a trending audio about being obsessed with something. So there's like, <laughs> I'm covered in lace in the video and I'm clearly obsessed with lace, which was the perfect sound. And I uploaded it, went to sleep, woke up in the morning and was shocked that it was at 100,000 views overnight. My first video, I was completely freaked out. <laughs> 
had no idea to expect that and subsequently went on to several million views within a few weeks. So now I mainly make short educational videos about lace history. I share whatever research I'm working on. So when I was digging deep into my refashioning the Renaissance research, I made some TikToks about involuntary nuns and some of their stories. I also share stories of textiles when I travel. So I try to share all of my experiences that I've, you know, been lucky to travel to so many places. I was recently in St. Gallen, Switzerland, visiting embroidery manufactories and museums. And so I sh I've been sharing a series of videos on that. And then I think my most popular series is called Beyond the Veil, which I'm about to make a few more of. They will probably be up by the time this podcast airs. Um, and that is a series that explores the intersection of lace and death. So you'd be surprised how many stories there are that connect those. But that has been particularly popular during spooky season. Well, if our listeners are interested in following along on those platforms, where can they find you? So I have the same handle on Instagram and TikTok, which was something I chose on a whim 10 years ago. And now I don't think anyone can pronounce it, which is fine. But it's Irena Naomi. E-R-E-N-A-N-A-O-M-I. And it's my name pronounced um, phonetically in Japanese, the way I was called as a kid in Japan. Oh, that's great. I love that. I, I was always curious about that because I follow you and have for a long time. And I was like, but it's Elena in person. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So two more questions for you. I do, of course, want to ask you about the Lace Guild and how people can get involved. But before that, you currently serve as a, sp a collection specialist at the Antonio Rotti Center at the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art in New York City. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the Rotti Center and what it is exactly that you do there? Because I love the Rotti Center. It holds a dear place in my heart. Yes, we sort of consider ourselves at the Rati Center to be a hidden gem within the Met that many people haven't heard of, but is actually open to the public by appointment. So the Antonio Rati Textile Study and Storage Center is a facility that houses over 33,000 textiles from 12 curatorial departments spanning 5,000 years of history. So we are not ourselves a curatorial department, but we are a research facility and specialist library where people can come and visit and view textiles in our study rooms when they're not on view. Mm -hmm. This is everything from archaeological linens from ancient Egypt all the way to contemporary fiber art and 5,000 pieces of lace to my delight. So my job as the collection specialist is primarily to work with researchers and students and the public to give tours, to bring classes through, work with fellows and sometimes curators to support and facilitate textile research up close. Mm -hmm. And I have conducted it myself several times at the Roddy Center, including uh, looking at some examples of 17th century lace a few years ago. So. Ooh. It's a supremely special place. And, and like Elena said, it's open to the public, but you just have to have a valid research request. So back to the Brooklyn Lace Guild, how can people get involved if they are so inclined? 
So Brooklyn Lace Guild has really evolved since its founding. Um, during the pandemic, like the entire lace community, we went online, like the entire world, we went online, we went on Zoom, and we started meeting that way um, instead of in person at the Textile Art Center where we used to meet in Brooklyn. So that has enabled us to expand our reach um, across the country. And now we have lace makers all across the United States. And we describe Brooklyn Lace Guild not as a geographic region, but as a state of mind. So <laughs> all are welcome to join us. Um, it's very affordable. You can find out more about us on our website. It needs some updating, but I'm trying to keep it up. BrooklynLaceGuild.com. And we are also on social media at BrooklynLaceGuild on Instagram. And we have a Facebook page as well. And essentially, we are just a group of like-minded individuals who love lace and are from all different walks of life and backgrounds, from collectors and historians to makers and designers. And we just come together and hang out and make lace and, and talk about what we love about lace. So if you would like to find us um, in person for the duration of Threads of Power, we are honored to be artists in residence at the exhibition. And we have our own lace maker studio on the fourth floor. So don't miss it. There's also an excellent installation by Mary Adeogun on Nigerian lace. So don't miss that either. It's right outside our studio. And we will be there every Saturday and Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m. through December 18th. So in fact, today, after we get off of this interview, I will head right over to the Bard Graduate Center Lacemaker Studio. I think that is so incredible that you were there every weekend. <laughs> you know, I was going to just do one weekend day, but it's been such a delight and such a rare opportunity that I, I'm really trying to go every day. So you can find me often or at least someone. And we're trying to demonstrate a full range of techniques. So we have everything from lace spraying to tatting to knotting to bobbin lace and needle lace. So you can see all kinds of different lace on the walls. And we even have a little demo pillow that maybe somebody can teach you a bobbin lace stitch or two. Oh, I want to come back. The, the day that I visited the exhibition, the hours for the lace making studio weren't open. So um, I think I'm going to have to make a little foray down there before, before it closes in December. Yes. Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. We will not keep you from the lace making studio any longer. We really appreciate this chat today. Thank you so much. Elena, thank you so much for chatting with us this week and dispelling the myth that lace making is a lost art form. And dress listeners, as we have learned, the art of handmade lace is alive and well today. And you can tune into one of the channels Elena mentioned to learn more about how to get involved or about her work in general. If you happen to be in New York City, you can also check out the exquisite example of her work that we discussed, um, which is on view at the Bard Graduate Center as part of the Threads of Power exhibition, which is up until the end of this year, 2022. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the value of the handmade in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And if you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that helps produce the show each and every week. More Dressed coming your way on Tuesday.
Dress? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.